Good morning. When we uh, come into uh, the house of God, we come here to worship. We come here to pray, to pray with one another. We come here to hear the word of God taught. We come here to minister and to serve, uh, serve one another. And we come here to prepare ourselves to leave these four walls each week, to go out into this world to be a witness for Jesus Christ. That should be really our life. Uh, Our goal as Christians is to gather together and to even the more so as you see the day approaching of our Lord's return, uh, oh, how much we need uh, the fellowship with one another. I, when I sit and I hear the lyrics to the worship songs, and even as we open my heart, Lord, open the eyes of my heart, that's what I'm wanting God to do in me in worship. But one of the things that struck me even in worship this morning, I usually always look for that, and I'll even write things down, but... My Father has spoken, and He keeps His every word. Do you remember that line? He's spoken, and He keeps His every word. And the only thing that we have to ask ourselves when we are worshiping the Lord is, do I believe that? Is that something I really believe? And so I encourage you, take, a, take something out to write with when worship is going on. Write something down that God just ministers because we want to tune in. We don't want to tune out. We don't want to be distracted. Tune in from the very beginning so your heart is prepared uh, for the word. And so with that, turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 14, looking at verses 6 to 13 this morning. I read a a quote that I came across uh, this morning that I thought I'd start out sharing with you. Uh, and I think it's, I really like, it's by a, a pastor, Alistair Begg. Uh, probably a number of you have heard of him. Uh, this is a quote that he gave. I thought it was, it was very well put. He said, in the Old Testament, Christ is predicted. In the Gospels, He is revealed. In Acts, he is preached. In the epistles, he is explained. And in Revelation, he is expected. I like that. So you might want to consider as we are going through the book of Revelation, that this is the end of all things. This is the things to come. This is the things that as Christians we are waiting for this day, or at least we should be waiting in anticipation for this coming day where we're going to be in the presence of the Lord. And again, I ask, we have to believe. We have to ask ourselves, do I believe what the last book of the Bible says in regards to Christ's return? I titled this morning's message, 
three angels with three messages. And as I shared last week in chapter 14, we looked at the first five verses. This 14th chapter of Revelation, we might say, is the big picture. It's the big picture with not a whole lot of details. But as we are in this section of Revelation, what we're receiving right now is we're receiving some general pictures that are going to tell us what's going to transpire during this tribulation period. But we're going to see more detail when we get into chapter 15 and moving forward of the things even that we're going to talk about this morning. Let me start by giving you just a simple outline. If you want, you can write these down. But verse 6 to 7 is going to be this first angel that John sees flying in the middle of the heaven preaching the everlasting gospel to those who dwell on the earth. In verse 8, the second angel announces that Babylon, the great city, has fallen. In verses 9 to 11, there's going to be a third angel that John sees, and he is going to be flying through the heavens with a loud voice, Warning those on the earth who worship the beast or take his mark that they're going to fall under the wrath of God. Three angels this week. There's another three next. God uses angels. There's quite a few angels that God is using throughout this seven-year tribulation period. We're going to finish in verse 12 to 13 with some words of hope for the tribulation saints. Again, I want to remind you as we are still looking at the start, we're in the the start, we might say, of the second half of the tribulation period. Keep in mind, the tribulation period spans a literal seven-year period of time. We're in the middle of of the tribulation period here in this 14th chapter. Let's, um, let's look and, and start with uh, in the book of Matthew. If you were to look back, I keep taking you back to Matthew chapter 24 because it's a prophetical chapter where Jesus addressed his disciples that day and gave them really what the signs of his return would be. In chapter 24, verse 14, Jesus said this to his disciples, that this gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached in all of the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. You see, the gospel message, what we have been given as Christians to take into the world, is why the Lord is not back yet. When that last person receives Christ, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, please receive him. We want to go home. We want to go home to be with the Lord. So when that last person, there's no reason for our Lord to delay. Things will be set in motion of things that we're reading in this book of Revelation. This angel, this first angel, 
is going to be announcing, he's going to be preaching to those who are on the earth the everlasting gospel. And you know, in the, the gospel itself, we should know what the gospel means. Gospel means just good news. And it's a timeless gospel. God's given the gospel. He's given the good news. But it's spoken of throughout our Bibles in different ways. It's timeless, but it's everlasting. And in scripture, we see the gospel portrayed this way, the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus told his disciples to go out with the gospel of the kingdom. There's also the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's the gospel of the grace of God. There's the gospel of his son. The gospel of peace. The gospel of God. The gospel of the glory of Christ. It's put in different ways. But it's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ that we all have. If you're saved anyway, you have that good news in your heart. Remember, though, back in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, it tells us that this earth became very corrupt. The earth was corrupt, and God said, In Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, the Lord said that he was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart, we're told. Just think of that. God that created it all, being sorry that he had made man. Grieved in his heart. That's how corrupt the world had become. And so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I made them. Just think of what that was to the heart of our Lord. To destroy all living creatures in that flood. Because of the wickedness of man's heart. But then we see in verse 8 a a verse that just shines forth. It says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Amen. Noah found grace. In the eyes of the Lord. And God said for your life Noah. And for your family Noah. I'll save you. I'll preserve you. I'll keep you. And that's what God is doing with us. He has his hand upon you. As a child of God. He's going to preserve you. In this world. He's going to I believe take us out of this world. At the rapture of the church. But then we look at the book of Romans. This is New Testament now. We know that Jesus says, As in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Man is on a cycle. 
He does the same things over and over again. There's nothing new. The same sins that they dealt with, we deal with today. And we read in the book of Romans about the fallen state, the sinfulness of mankind. And we're told in that first chapter some words that are very similar to what we read in Genesis 6. That God gave them over. He gave them up to their uncleanness. It also says in chapter 1 that God gave them up to their vile passions. It also tells us that God gave them over to a debased mind. That's in chapter 1. But if you read all of Romans chapter 1, you'll see the sins of mankind. And what we know is that God doesn't always strive with man. There comes a point at which God says, I'll give you over to your sin. I'll give you over to a debased mind. I'll give you over to your uncleanness. This angel, the first of six angels that we see in this chapter... God is going to use to bring that everlasting gospel to this world. That's our God. That's the God we serve. He's a loving God, but he's also a holy God. Look at your Bibles at verse 6. John says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, He he says another angel because the last angel that he saw was in Revelation 11.15. And so here's another angel flying in the the midst of heaven. It's, It's really literally put in the middle of heaven. Having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. And look what he says. To every nation, every tribe, tongue... And people, sounds like the Great Commission, doesn't it? Sounds like the gospel going out. And it really is going out to the whole world. Saying to the people who are remaining on this earth during the tribulation period. Saying to them with a a loud voice, fear God. And give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth the sea. And the springs of water. I want you to notice who the angel is preaching to. To those who dwell on the earth. These are the earth dwellers. These are the ones that we might say that have been left behind after the rapture of the church. But it also tells us how far reaching these. This message will go. It says to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. In other words, the whole world is going to hear this message during that time. Looking back again to Genesis chapter 6 verse 10, we read this. And Noah, he begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. The earth also, we're told, was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. 
Sounds like our earth today. And so God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, Noah. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. Pitch is like a black tar. Pitch is what was used to seal up the cracks within the ark. Remember that as we go forward. Secondly, this angel flying through heaven, he's, we're told he's proclaiming it with a loud voice. And whenever you see, and you see a lot of loud voices throughout the book of Revelation, but when you see this loud voice speaking, it's speaking of urgency. It's speaking with a voice of concern for the people that are on the earth. And then the message. What is the angel saying? What is he proclaiming in this gospel message, this everlasting gospel? With his loud voice, he's saying, fear God and give glory to him. Why? For the hour of his judgment has come. The hour of God's judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. It's like this last cry to the inhabitants of the earth. This angel's message, though, tells us of an age-old problem of mankind. An age-old problem that we can see really in this text in three ways. We know that Paul speaks in the book of Romans about not having fear of God. It says, no fear of God. And Paul says in Romans 3.18, he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And I can tell you that there are people today that are really challenging God with the idea that, I, hey, I'm not going to worry. I don't worry about hell. I don't worry about hell. No fear of God before their eyes. You could speak to them about even a coming judge. Well, let it come. No fear of God before their eyes. Noah preaching to the multitudes of people, and they still rejected the message. No fear of God before their eyes. That's not characteristic of us who know the Lord. We should have this reverential awe and fear of who God is. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 5, He says, But I will show you when you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed 
has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. That's Jesus' words. Fear him. In Hebrews 10.31, we read that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And every human being, every soul that has ever been birthed, everyone is going to someday stand before the Lord. Every knee is someday going to kneel before the Lord our God. We need to have that reverential fear of God. But the other thing that we see in our text here is they give no glory to God. Man refuses to give glory where glory is due. And that glory is due to God alone. That's it. But then we read in Romans 1.21, it tells us, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They did not glorify God. They could not glorify God because of their sin. You see, if you allow sin just to go unchecked and let it go, there'd be no room in your heart to give glory to God. But the third thing that we see in our text is that they would not worship Him either. No worship of God. The one who is the only one who is worthy of man's worship. Yet we read in Psalm 97 and even the psalm that that Kyle read, Psalm 117, but Psalm 97 verse 7 says, Let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. It says, Worship Him, all ye gods. And that's, gods is in a little g. Worship Him. And even in that Psalm 117 that was read this morning, it was a plea to both Jews and Gentiles, worship God. This angel is saying to the remaining inhabitants of the earth, you need to repent. You need to get your heart right. And if you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sin before God, you've never invited Him to come into your heart, my exhortation to you is do it today. Get your heart right today. Make sure you're right in your heart. Because if the Lord were to come back today, that's it. The good news is It appears that many during the tribulation period are going to hear this everlasting gospel and they're going to come to believe. We read in the next chapter, in chapter 15, verse 1, this is just before the last set of judgments are poured out on this earth. They're called the bowl judgments. John says, I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. 
and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name. These are the ones that saw victory or will see victory during the tribulation period. He saw them standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, and listen to what they're doing. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. And they saw the song of the Lamb saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. It sounds like they're worshiping God, doesn't it? There's been a change of heart. They're now worshiping God, unlike what this angel is proclaiming against the inhabitants of the earth who refuse to worship God. Here's this now multitude singing and worshiping God. It goes on to say, Who shall not fear you? Here it is. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? It's what we're reading here in the 14th chapter. For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. We're seeing a change. And isn't that what God has done in you? Can you remember the days where you didn't fear God? When you wouldn't worship God? When you wouldn't give glory to God? And yet now God has given you a new heart. And a different reason for living. And a different way of thinking. And now you're worshiping God. But we also know. That during this tribulation period. There are going to be hearts. That are going to grow harder. And harder. And harder. We read in Revelation chapter 16. Verse 9. This is after the fourth. Bull judgment is poured out. It says, and men were scorched with great heat. And we're told that they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. And then it says this, and they did not repent and give him glory. They did not repent and give him glory. They could not repent and give him glory. You see, there will come a point in which a person's heart can become that hard where they won't turn, they won't heed the Holy Spirit convicting their heart, drawing them, that they won't repent. In Revelation 16, 11, after the fifth bowl judgment is poured out on this earth, we read, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And then it says it again. And they did not repent of their deeds. In verse 21 of that chapter, after the fifth bowl is poured out, it says, uh, excuse me, after the seventh bowl judgment is poured out, we're told that men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. Blaspheme blaspheming God. Basically shaking their fist at God. No repentance of heart. Their heart has become 
hard as rock, hard as stone, and they can't repent. We need to know this, church, that when the Holy Spirit stops drawing a person's heart, their only response will be blasphemy. That's all the Bible do. Repentance will no longer be an option. That's why when the Lord says today is the day of salvation, don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today for your life is as a vapor. It's here for a moment and then it vanishes away. And isn't life like that? Some have tried to question the love of God over these plagues. They say, how could a a, a loving God bring such judgment upon his creation? But I have a better question for us this morning. I think this is the better question. How could a loving and righteous God, if he is in your mind, allow sin and rebellion to continue without being punished or bringing justice? Upon this earth. Do you want a just judge? Do you want a just God. And a righteous God. To deal with the sin. That is even in the world. Jesus did it at the cross. He took our sin upon him. So that we wouldn't have that punishment upon us. But God must judge sin. He did it with Noah in the flood. He was sorry that he had made man. But he's going to come again as the righteous judge in the end. And I don't even claim to understand all of God's ways. But this is what I do know. From the beginning of creation, God has been extending grace and mercy to this world. To the people in this world. From the garden to the flood. From the flood to the raising up of a nation called Israel. From a nation to the cross of Jesus Christ. Where the ultimate price of sin was paid. And then with all patience and long suffering. God is waiting for that last soul whom he only knows. To take the gift of repentance and to turn to God. And then even after God removes the church from this world via the rapture of the church, he still seeks to save all who would turn in repentance to him. And then he still remains faithful to the nation of Israel in spite of their unbelief, in spite of their rebellion and rejection. God says, I'm going to save a remnant of my people Israel. And if that is not the grace and the mercy of God, I don't know what is. That's our God towards mankind. We've already seen the patient love and mercy of God and his reaching out to every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. That's what God desires. He's going to 
seal those 144,000 that we've talked about, those Jews that are going to be protected by God as a witness for him during the tribulation period. He's going to have the two witnesses that he also is going to put his power of his Holy Spirit upon. And they're going to be witnesses for Christ during the tribulation period. For those first three and a half years, the two witnesses. And now in Revelation chapter 14, we read of this angel flying through the midst of the heaven with the everlasting gospel to every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. That's a God of mercy. Our God is a God of love. John 3.16, you all know it. Or at least you should. Our God is a God of patience. 2 Peter 3.9 He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the heart of God. He doesn't want any one of our loved ones to go to hell. He wants to save. He wants them to come to repentance. He wants to use you and I to bring that gospel to them. To let them know that if you'll just repent, if you'll just turn to the Lord, God will forgive and God will save. And He even gave that great commission to you and I. He gave us the privilege to go out into this world and to open our mouth on behalf of Christ. And make disciples. And he says that I'm going to be with you till the end of the age. That includes you and I. But then the second angel that John sees, he makes another proclamation in verse 8. Look what it says. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. This verse that we're reading here is the first mention of Babylon in the book of Revelation. The angel's announcement to John and the world is Babylon has fallen has fallen. That saying it double like that is, is a way of just saying just the importance of what's happening here. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. Yet what John is seeing here in this vision or what is being told by this angel is that something that has not yet happened. But as John is receiving this as if it's already a done deal. It's already as if it's going to take place. At the end of the tribulation is really after this seventh angel pours out his bowl. In the second half of the tribulation that the city of Babylon is completely gone. Never to return again. We read in Revelation 16, 19. Now the great city was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness 
of his wrath. Wow. Just those words. That's against Babylon. And it's important for us as Christians to understand the significance of Babylon in Scripture. And to do that, we need to look back once again into the book of Genesis. In chapter 10, we read about a man by the name of Nimrod, who was the descendant of Ham that we've already read, one of Noah's sons. He was the great-grandson of Noah. His name, Nimrod, means to rebel. And instead of uh, uh, being a, a great hunter as he's portrayed in Scripture before Yahweh, Nimrod becomes the ultimate rebel against God. In Genesis chapter 10, verse 8, we read that Cush, who was the son of Ham, he begat Nimrod, who was the great son of Noah. He began to be a mighty one on the earth, we're told this of Nimrod. He was mighty hunter before Yahweh, before the Lord. And therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And then it says in verse 10, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Eric, Akkad, and Kalman in the land of Shinar. Now Shinar is in the ancient Mesopotamia. I think we have a map up here of that um, that you can see. All of these cities that were founded really by Nimrod, it says, and also Nimrod even uh, established uh, Nineveh. Remember who went to Nineveh up there in the top. Go to the next map so you can see you can see where Jerusalem is there on the Mediterranean Sea, and then you can see where Babylon is. That's about a 500-mile distance approximately from Jerusalem to the area of Babylon, to the region of the area of Mesopotamia was between the Tigris River and the Euphrates River. That whole area right there is where this area, where these cities were built by Nimrod. To the Jew, to a Jew, Nimrod and Babylon stood for everything that was evil, everything that was idolatrous. Nimrod was a man who would set his will against God. And so you have to take on a Jew's mind. How would a Jew understand Babylon here in the book of Revelation? How would they understand Nimrod and Babylon and these cities of Mesopotamia and the Babylonian captivity and Daniel and everything that went on in this region? I want to read to you a little bit of what the historian... Josephus wrote concerning Nimrod. Josephus was a, a Roman Jewish historian that lived in the first century uh, AD. This is what he wrote concerning Nimrod. He says, Now it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and a contempt of God. He was the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah, a bold man, and of great strength of hand. Listen to what he did. He persuaded them not to ascribe to God. He, he persuaded the people not to ascribe to God. 
as if it were through his means that they would be happy, but to believe that it was their own courage which procured their happiness. He also gradually charged the government, changed the government, excuse me, into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God. There it is, turning men from the fear of God, but to bring them into a constant dependence on his power. Speaking of Nimrod. And he, Nimrod, also said that he would revenge on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again. If you're going to cause a flood, I'll revenge upon Nimrod himself, or upon God himself, for destroying their forefathers. Now the multitude were very ready to follow the determination of Nimrod and to esteem it a piece of cowardice to submit to God. He was talking, submit to me, don't submit to God. For destroying their forefathers. Now the multitude were very ready to follow the determination of Nimrod and to esteem it a piece of cowardice to submit, excuse me, to submit to God. And they built a tower, neither sparing any pains nor being in any degree negligent about the work. And by reason of the multitude of hands they employed into it, it grew very high. You know the story of the Tower of Babel. It grew very high sooner than anyone could expect. But the thickness of it was so great and it was so strongly built that thereby its greatest height seemed above the view to be less than it really was. It was built of burnt brick, cemented together with mortar and made of butamen that it might be liable to, not liable to admit water. Remember what we read about the ark? Remember about the butamen or what was used to, to seal the bottom of the ark? Here's Nimrod building the Tower of Babel out of this brick, this fire brick, and putting butamen into it and saying, you think that you're going to destroy this earth by flood again? We'll make this thing so strong and so watertight it'll never come down. When God saw that they acted so madly, he did not resolve to destroy them utterly since they were not grown wiser by the destruction of the former sinners. Speaking back. But he caused a tumult among them by producing in them diverse languages, causing that through the multitude of their languages that they should not be able to understand one another. The place wherein they built the tower is called Babylon. Because the confusion of that language which readily understood before for the Hebrews uh, for the Hebrews mean by the word Babel confusion that was Josephus writing of this account what he recorded why is Babel why is Babylon so much of a thing that Babylon has fallen is because God said you know nothing new under the sun man is doing the same things that they did then, they're going to do it again. And there's going to, I believe, there's going to be a Babylon or a Babylon that is going to be rebuilt. Babel means confusion. And Babylon means the gate of God or the gateway to God. This area of Mesopotamia was an area 
that at the time it was polytheistic. It was an area that boasted 2,100 different deities in the day that they would worship. It was the Babylonian Empire first that was taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire in 539 B.C. This city of Babylon, it was the capital of the ancient land of Babylonia, Mesopotamia. We see through this, we see in the book of Revelation now, why God will destroy this resurrected Babylon that's going to come up during the tribulation period. And we're going to see that God is going to completely and finally destroy it. It had everything to do with the religious, political, and monetary system that is going to be built under the Antichrist during the tribulation period. Why will she be destroyed? Because she has made all nations, Babylon, to drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Fornication, in the Greek, it's the Greek word pornea. It's pornea's illicit sexual intercourse or adultery with another person. But it can also be spiritual adultery. And it's associated with pagan practices. Idolatry and the worship of things that are other than God. It's the forsaking of the one true God. You see, that's what's happening. That's why our world is going to end in the place that it's going to end. And why God will intervene into this period of of time, the end of all things. In this second half of the tribulation period, it's going to be a time that has never been seen before. It's going to be a darkness upon this earth, a spiritual darkness that this world has never seen before. It's likened to a person who is drunk, intoxicated, Someone that's controlled, you know, when they're controlled by alcohol, how they are. Here they are being controlled by their spiritual wickedness and their darkness and their demonic, their drug use. Look at our world now. All of this speaks of sexual immorality. It speaks of drug abuse. It speaks of demonic practices. It speaks of the worship of the Antichrist. It speaks of materialism and riches. All of this made up Babylon. Everything in the Jews' mind, when they thought about it, spoke of wickedness, evil. The third angel now warns in verse 9. The third angel comes on the scene and warns those who dwell on the earth. Look what it says. Then a third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on their forehead or on his hand, he himself also drank of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence 
of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. There's three ways during the tribulation period that a person will lose their chance for salvation. There won't be a chance if they do one of these three things. One is if they reject that gospel, the gospel that is calling them to repent and turn to God, turn the other way. Number two, if they worship the beast and his image, they have no hope after that. If they take the mark of the beast, they have no hope. And why? Because by doing that, by worshiping his image, by taking the mark of the beast, they're pledging their allegiance, so to speak, to the Antichrist, which in essence is giving it to Satan. There is no hope after that for those who would reject those things. And then we're told what their punishment will be for those who give their allegiance to the beast. For he, for he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength in the cup of his indignation. I mean, those are probably some of the harshest words that we can read in the book of Revelation of what that means when God will finally bring to justice when God will finally intervene and remember that the second half of the tribulation period it gets worse and worse and worse it's why in the second half they're blaspheming God because of their pains because of their suffering but drinking the wine of the wrath of God from the cup of his indignation. That's his wrath. Was a way of describing God's coming judgment upon them. We all have loved ones. We need to seek to warn. We need to seek to share our faith with people. Share the love of Christ. Don't just share judgments coming. Share the love of the Lord. But if need be, share with them that judgment is coming. Sometimes both are needed. We finish in verse 12 and 13. It says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And by the way, these are the tribulation saints. This is not you and I. This is not the church. I believe this is the tribulation saints. The patience of the saints. Those that are going to be martyred during the tribulation period for their faith, for their testimony. And then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, John says, Possibly Jesus' voice. 
Right? Blessed. You know what the word blessed is? Happy. Blessed or happy are the dead. Blessed or happy are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. In other words, it's going to be better to die. It's going to be better to be martyred than to remain and to go through the things that are going to be transpiring on this earth. Happy are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works will follow them. The martyred saints during the tribulation period. My prayer is that my family members that don't know the Lord, that they're going to give their life to Christ. They may be one of these martyrs that's going to receive a martyr's crown for their faith. And how gracious our God is. He wants to save. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save. I shared last Sunday that God will never forget your works. He's not going to forget theirs either. You see, some of these people that get saved during the tribulation period, we're going to assume that they're going to be a witness for Jesus Christ in their life even, though they may be martyred for their faith, they're going to be witnessing to others that might get saved. God's not going to forget your works, their works, their labors. Next week, there's three more angels in this chapter. They're going to make uh, more pronouncements. And all of this in chapter 14 is setting the stage for that last set of bold judgments in chapter 15 and chapter 16. And then we're going to be moving closer. We're going to see the destruction in more detail of Babylon. I don't know if I have a picture up there of, uh, you have uh, one of the pictures there of uh, Babylon today? Okay, there's a drawing. Uh, if somebody, you know, doesn't mean it looked like that exactly, but that's somebody's drawing of Babylon on the Euphrates River, right? And show them that. There's modern day. Interesting. There's a whole bunch of pictures. You want to go and look at uh, modern day Baghdad today, and you'll see, this is just a little part of it. There's a whole bunch to this whole thing. You know who was building that? It was Saddam Hussein was building this. He was building it. And that gate right there, all that, it, you know, everything that he was building, there's bricks in, in there that put him down like he wants people to worship him. You can read the whole thing. Go online. Just, just look up uh, all of this. I'm of the opinion that I believe that this Babylon is going to be rebuilt in a literal way. It already started. This is sitting on the side of ancient Babylon. There's another one I think I have of some of the ruins. Is it there? I think of um, before Saddam Hussein started rebuilding. 
they have found all the ancient ruins. Archaeologists have found it, and then he says, he gets this idea, I'm going to rebuild Babylon. Why? You know, it's going to be, I believe, as we're going to read, as we go forward, we're going to see that this is going to place where the demonic activity, this is where the Antichrist, everything, and I believe it's, I believe in a literal Babylon. Some people spiritualize it and say it's just only speaking of spiritual Babylon, and, but I think there's going to be a literal Babylon rebuilt. Some people can't wrap their head around it. How can you rebuild Babylon? People thought the same thing when it came to Israel being dispersed from their land for 2,000 years, and so they started coming up with all these things about Israel, not realizing that God was going to bring them back into their land in 1947, 2,000 years later, bring them back in the land, fulfill prophecy. I don't see any problem with God rebuilding, seeing that this is rebuilt, but then God's going to destroy it. Never, as it's put, never to be rebuilt again. Everything that happened back there in Genesis comes full circle right here at the end of the tribulation period. And so let's, uh, let's all stand, and um, we have much. I know it's heavy. I know there's a lot of, of things there. You're in that section of Revelation. I, I can't apologize for it. You're just simply in the book of Revelation that speaks of hard things. But it's important for us as Christians to know these things, to know the truth and the truth of God's word. And so let's, let's worship, let's truly turn our hearts to the Lord and worship because he deserves all of our worship this morning.